This morning we're talking about the hour of darkness, that time that Christ was on the cross. As I start out this morning, I want to share a story with you from an elder at Oak Hills Church. His name was Jim Barker, and he tells a story about his friend named Claude Harmon. Claude, like Jim, was a, a great golf instructor, and Claude would often give advice. He had four sons who also were becoming golf instructors, and he said to his sons, he said, boys, whenever someone comes to you to learn to play golf, you will see in their swing ten different problems. Your job as the teacher, as the instructor, is to find the one problem that causes the other nine. (laughs) You know, we look at our world, we can easily see ten problems, okay? There's the the joke runs on Instagram and Facebook, I've got 99 problems, but whatever ain't one of them. For me, example, I've got 99 problems, but being good looking isn't one of them. You know, we say that. Uh, But in our world, there are at least 10 problems. We can agree on that, correct? That there are 10 problems in our world. And we need to see what's the one that causes the other nine. With all the problems in our world today, there's one root cause for these problems. The Bible tells us this, and it also tells us that Jesus dealt with this particular problem. It's the fountainhead of all other problems, and he dealt with it on the cross. And when the problem was addressed, Jesus declared, it is finished. The question we need to answer today is, what exactly was finished? Because if it was indeed finished, then would we really be doing some of the things we're still doing? You ponder that for a second. Because what happened that day that makes the cross such a big deal in our world today, and we're going to look into the story today, we're going to look into Matthew chapter 27, uh, starting with verse 27, And we're going to discuss that. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you again that we have the opportunity to be here. And as we open your word right now, as as we look at this this time where Jesus was on the cross, this hour of darkness, uh, I pray that we will see uh, that it it was not for nothing. I I pray that as we look at this, we'll be able to leave here differently. We'll be able to, to... to reach out, to have a conviction in our lives, to live differently because of that hour of darkness that your son endured for us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Matthew 27, starting with verse 27, says this, Then the governor's, uh, the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns And set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. They knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took the staff and they struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. They forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered him, excuse me, they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. Are you picturing all this? Verse 40 says, And saying, 
you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priest, the teachers of the law, these are the educated people, by the way, mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split. This is my favorite part right here. And the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city to appear and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. You see, the one problem that is the cause of the other nine, very simply put, is sin. And when Jesus said, it is finished, make no mistake, he was not referring to his own life. He was referring to himself being the final sacrifice for our sins. It is finished. He did what he came to earth to do. But for some reason, that's not good enough for us. Look at it this way. I want to go back to verse 41 through 44, talking about the chief priests. They made this assessment about Jesus dying on the cross. And it was actually a correct assessment. They said, they mocked him. And they said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. You know, they were right. Jesus could not save himself and save us also. He could have, but that would be contradictory to God's plan. So he couldn't, okay? It wasn't that he didn't have the power. It was that he had submitted to the will of God, and so he could not do that. All right? He, he could not come down and save himself and save us also. But in doing so, if he, if he would have done that, it would have left us in eternal jeopardy. And, and it, in fact, would not be finished at all. So he did it. He chose the hour of darkness. He chose to save us, and he chose to lose his own life on the cross. Because Jesus understands the algorithm of God is that God restores life to the world by the death of his son. And because of that, it is indeed finished. But there's, there's more to the cross and what it shows us. This hour of darkness, Jesus' time of torment and being mocked, the whole crucifixion scene, the time that he hung on the cross, it seemed at that moment all was lost. 
But that time on the cross reveals something to us. It reveals something about God that you may not have understood before. It reveals the holiness of God, and it also reveals the severity of sin. You see, the problem that allows these other nine is sin, like I said. And it doesn't help, Christians, that in my humble opinion, we no longer fear God. You see, because to us, sin is no big deal. I mean, hey, you know what? We all slip up sometimes. It's okay. That when, when you go to your accountability partner, if you have one, you go, hey, I messed up. I got angry at work. The first thing we say, it's okay. No, it's not. I'm your accountability partner. I have to say to you, you're right. You're an idiot. You shouldn't have done that. Now, now we can move forward, but I, I should not start out by saying whatever you have stumbled on this week is okay because it's not because it's called sin. And sin is the one problem that causes the other nine or the other 99, if you will. But we kind of act like it's okay. We live our lives asking forgiveness instead of permission. And we make that a joke, but, but we do it because we know that most of the time what we desire is selfish and what we desire will break God's heart. And so we go, I'll ask forgiveness later. It'll be okay. And you know I'm right because you did it this week. And, and, and I probably did it this week. And you'll do it next week. And, and we just continue on and on until we finally see even our smallest sin for what it really is. Separation from God. So, what do we do now? Our world is in shambles. Everywhere I go, and I tell people that I'm a, I'm a minister, oh, what, what do you think about this? Or, or what do you think about, about this issue over here? Or, or what do you think about this? What are we going to do? I've, I've gotten text messages over the last few weeks from, from other Christian people who say, hey, hey, what are we going to do about this? this? This judgment has been made, or this statement has been said, or, or this person did this. What are we going to do about it as Christians? And i got to thinking about that because it's, it's a valid thought. What are we going to do about all these things? Well, for starters, plank eye, we're going to get the plank out of our own eye before we try to get the speck out of someone else's. And I don't mean to be ugly, but brothers and sisters, we cannot be appalled by the things that are happening in our country when we're doing the same things. Now, you may be saying, well, hold on now, I'm not doing those things. And you may not be, but listen to this. 32% of Christians get divorced. 33% of non-Christians get divorced. That's from a BARDA poll of 2008. I was afraid to look at 2014. You know, when, when you look at abortion in our country, you, you, you listen to, to what's going on with Planned Parenthood and, 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 and what, they're, what they've been doing and, and all this controversy with Planned Parenthood. And then you look at the Alan Guttmacher Institute and it tells us that 43% of aborting women identify themselves as Protestant, while 27% identify themselves as Catholic. Now, if those numbers are accurate, that leaves us with a shocking conclusion that 70% of all abortions in the U.S. are performed on women who claim the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I realize there are a lot of people in our world, in the nation, who, who claim some allegiance to Christ but don't live as Christians. I understand that, so that could be a, loosely, a loose number. But that's, that's what the facts are. We can't be surprised about what's going on in our country when, when we're condoning it, when we're participating in it, the same as everyone else. I'm not making this stuff up. Listen, 40 million U.S. adults regularly visit internet porn sites, and 47% of Christians say that pornography is a major problem at home. Those are just three of the ten problems that we have in our country. I didn't even get into pride and greed and racism and lifestyle choices. But you know what? They're all traced back to one word. Sin. 
Nobody wakes up one morning and says, I can't wait to have an abortion. Nobody wakes up one morning and says, I can't wait to be addicted to pornography. Nobody wakes up one morning and says, I can't wait to get rid of my wife. Not early on in marriage anyways. I don't know. <laughs> that had nothing to do with my marriage because it's awesome. All right. My wife has put up with me for the last four weeks. She's a saint. Okay, let me tell you. But it's, nobody starts out with that in mind. That's, that's not what we start out with. Especially as Christians, especially as new Christians, we come out and we want to change the world. We want to rally for Christ. And somewhere from baptism to, to, to a month, a year, uh, 10 years later, we lose that and we fall into the same problem with our life swing, if you will, that the rest of the world has. And we allow sin to get a hold of it and mess up all the other nine. And we can't expect... Um, we, we, until we see sin for what it is and live as a reflection of, our, of Christ rather than a reflection of our culture, we can't expect non-Christians to behave any differently than they currently are. Brothers and sisters, the fact is this. God is holy. It's a foundational truth in the Bible from, presented to us from Genesis to Revelation. And, and that word holy means to be set apart. To be unique. God is totally and utterly different. He's not like us. Our holy God cannot look on evil because our sin absolutely disgusts the holiness of God. Look at what Habakkuk says in a conversation with the Lord. Habakkuk uh, chapter 1 verses 12 and 13. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my holy one, you will never die. Lord, you Lord have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Why indeed? You know, it may seem that when we look at our world and our culture and, and things that are going south at a, at a rapid rate, you know, we, what we never hear on the news or 2020 or Dateline or one of those things, we never hear somebody lead off with, the world's problem tonight is sin. We never hear that. We hear them lead off with, with something about, uh, you know, corruption in government or, or you know, something uh, unethical in business. We hear about mistakes that, that leaders in education might make. We hear about, you know, um, they, they talk about a, someone who, who goes into a theater and shoots it up and they talk about the psychology behind it. Or, or they use words like the sociology and, and how to understand these people. We talk about murders and robberies and rapists and all kinds of mayhem. But not one person says... Thou shalt not commit a murder. Nobody, nobody says, you know, the real problem, Joan, is that we have sin in our world. Not that we just happen to have somebody have a small problem and take it on everybody else. Everything we do has been glossed over as a nation. We find, we find nice ways to share about this mayhem. But the problem is our holy God does not pretend that our sin is just a mental lapse. He doesn't condone it as just a simple stubbornness. God hates sin, and He cannot turn a blind eye to it. God will not compromise His holiness by indulging in our sinful behavior. That's what's happening in those, those verses in Habakkuk. If you read that whole chapter, that's what they're talking about. That's what Habakkuk's getting at. And in fact, God's stern holiness, it operates from His infinite love. And what we need to understand here is God has to honor these two strong emotions. His fiery holiness and His tender love. God's holiness and His love, they function together, and I'm grateful that they do, because if God were, were only holy, we would be destroyed. 
If it was all about the holiness of God, we wouldn't stand a chance. Because it goes back to the law, and the law condemns. It's, but the, because of the holiness, he can't be around sin, we're done. But if God were only love, a lack of discipline and a lack of correction would destroy us as well. It would just be, you know, spiritual and physical Armageddon. We'd just do whatever we want. But God's holiness and his love, they combine to do something imaginable. And, and in my, how I see it is, is God's holiness and his love combine, and God becomes a human being. God as a human leads a, sinful, a sinless life. God as a human dies on the cross in a sinner's place. This is the great drama of the cross. This, that hour of darkness is it's not God abandoning him, his son. It's God abandoning himself. That's God doing that for us because of his love, because of his holiness. Listen again to Matthew 27, verse 45. I'm going to start there again. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma, sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran out and got a sponge. He filled it with wine, vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus has cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus, after Jesus' resurrection, and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurions and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and saw all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Why does it take something like that, centurion? Why do you have to see the darkness, the, the curtain torn, the bodies rise up and go into the city? Why does it take something like that for us to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? You know, Jesus was forsaken so that we might be forgiven and received by a holy God. This is both the darkness and the beauty of the cross. Jesus became sin as all the sins of the world were placed by God on Jesus. Let me give you a different illustration for this. On October 16, 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed on takeoff. It was in Detroit, Michigan. It killed 155 passengers. Only one survivor, four-year-old Cecilia, was alive. She was found walking among the wreckage, totally unhurt. Just prior to the crash, Cecilia's mother, her name was Paula, unbuckled her seatbelt and knelt in front of her daughter with her arms wrapped around her. Paula took the devastation of that crash, and her little girl Cecilia lived. Paula took the fall for her daughter that she loved. Now you may be thinking, that poor little girl grew up without her mother. You're right, but she grew up knowing without a doubt that her mother loved her. In the same sense, God sent His Son, Jesus, who wrapped His arms around you and me, took the horrible darkness of the cross, took the fall and all of its sin so in the midst of the wreckage of this world we might live even today. You see, the sinless righteousness of Jesus Christ, it can be ours. I want to read from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. We're going to start there. This is the ministry of reconciliation. Listen to these words. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. 
What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. That's that darkness, that hour, that time on the cross with Christ's resurrection. God gave us a ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We, us, Christians, are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. God is holy and God is love. Our merits do not enhance God's love and our mistakes do not diminish it. Will you receive God's love in Christ for you today? If you'd like to do that, the baptistry is ready. If you'd like to know more maybe about becoming a Christian, now's the time for you to respond to God's word and to his plan. Our elders are here. They'd love to talk with you and study with you. If you need a moment of prayer with them, this is the time for you to respond. If you'd like to partner with us here at Huntsville Christian Church as we impact our community for the Lord, we welcome you now. But no matter what God has put on your heart today, now is the time for you to respond. Will you stand and sing our response song with us? It's been great to be here and to worship with you all again this morning and to see everybody. But now it's time to go. As you go this week, don't go in fear of the darkness of the cross, but go living your life as a reflection of Christ and a light that shines brightly for Him because of the forgiveness and the new life that we have received from that darkness. We've got 99 problems in our lives, that's for sure. But when we begin to get rid of the sin problem, you'll be amazed at how many of those other problems will begin to fade away. Will you sing this last song with us?